Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. It's called, Test the Spirits. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Worship is like skiing. Amen? (laughs) That's actually a really good point. So worship is like skiing, and let me explain how. So um, the, your, your circumstances are the landscape, okay? So here's all the topography of your landscape, of your circumstances. And these circumstances cannot be avoided or ignored. You aren't able to, to opt out of the circumstances in which you find yourself. They, they are there and they have to be traveled, okay? You don't have any choice in the matter. But God is like the snow that lies on top of your circumstances. And so he, he's, he's over your circumstances, he's above your circumstances, he wraps around your circumstances, and, and just as a skier interacts with their landscape through the snow, so you interact with your circumstances via God. So no matter what you're going through, where your journey of life takes you, God is there as well. He has a presence that looks after you. He has a presence of grace and of love and sustaining power. And these act as a cover over the landscape of your circumstances. And that is why worship is like skiing. Because worship enables you not to ignore your circumstances, but to indeed travel the ups and the downs of your circumstances. That's what worship enables you you to do. And as you're doing this, you know that God is there with you, that he's, he's actually covering your circumstances with his presence, with his grace, and with his love. So as a summary, your circumstances are the contours of the landscape. God is the snow that covers your circumstances, and worship is skiing. So without God there, 
Worship could not happen. Just like skiing can't happen without snow, without the enveloping and the protecting presence of God, all that you are left with is the harsh landscape of your circumstances. But, without, but, but with God, suddenly that harsh landscape is transformed into something rather beautiful, something rather breathtaking. Worship says that your circumstances are not the final thing or that your circumstances do not have the final say in your life. God has the final say. God is the final reality. And snow can transform harsh landscapes into something that you can ski on and God can transform the ups and downs of your life into worship. Now, I moved from Wales, a place that is famous for its rain, to Ottawa, a place that is famous for its snow. Now, Wales isn't famous for its snow. We might have it once a year and everyone stops what they're doing and they head up to the hills. And then they jump on their bin bags because no one has, you know, sleds because why invest in that? So, So we jump on our bin bags and we slide down the hills for a couple of hours until the snow stops and then we go home or until our hands freeze because we don't have winter gloves and so we wear multiple layers of socks. No one has winter gloves in Wales and so because the money that Canadians spend on winter gloves, Welsh people spend on umbrellas. So we don't have ski hills in Wales. Ski hills don't exist in Wales because you need to have real snow in order to have a ski hill. But we do have ski slopes, a synthetic ski slope. And in fact, the one that's in my mind right now is on the hillsides outside, outside of the capital city, Cardiff. And it's like this big oblong made of white waffles. Okay, that's what it looks like. There upon the hillside. It's white and the rest of the landscape is green. And for this young Welsh lad, um, this ski slope, this ski slope, you know, we, we had to put it in inverted commas because it's kind of weird. So this ski slope was like something out of science fiction. It was weird looking. It was out of place. It was a little bit exciting. It was more scary. And this was all that I knew of skiing. And I remember hearing about my friends going to this slope and doing this thing called, again, skiing, which involved strapping planks onto your feet, going up to a high place, willingly letting go of a safe place and sliding slash falling to a low place after which you would start again. And you would hope that at the end of going from the high place and sliding slash falling to the low place that you'd still have the planks on your feet and your head on your neck. And then I moved to Canada where minus 40 degrees is a thing and where snow exists. And for four months of the year, snow is everywhere, and people ski. Now, when I moved to Canada and I thought of skiing, all I could think of was the white oblong of waffles, this synthetic version of skiing. But, but after moving here to, here to Canada, there was this time where somehow the youth ended up going to a real ski hill with real snow, and I ended up on the slopes sliding down this real snow ski slope that felt incredibly massive and scary. I was utterly out of control and more afraid than I've maybe ever been in my life. All the while, these super confident kids were zooming around me like vultures circling 
a dying animal. Eventually, I got to the bottom of the bunny hill, and I thought, <laughs> never again. Friends, God wants us to view worship like Canadians view skiing, as a way of life, not as a thing that we do. Our circumstances are the landscape. God is the snow and worship is skiing. And what this means is that now every circumstance in your life, literally every circumstance you face is now an opportunity to worship. Everything is worship. One of the most unfortunate things that we have done as the church is to equate worship with singing. Because now worship is something limited. It's something separate from real life. God is over there and worship is over here. I mean, God is over here and real life is over here. And so we turn up on a Sunday morning, maybe because we have to, maybe because it's something that we've always done. And if we can turn up late and miss a couple of songs, then not a big deal, right? We've separated the sacred from the secular. We've replaced whole life worship with synthetic part-time worship. When we view God like the ski slope outside of Cardiff, Wales, our worship becomes kind of synthetic. But when we understand that God is like snow and he covers every inch of the entire landscape, the opportunities to worship become endless. Our worship transforms from being synthetic to authentic. Here in Canada, snow is everywhere, so everywhere can be a place for you to ski. And what this means, if we were to translate this, is that every circumstance in your life has the potential to be a catalyst for worship. Every duty or task or job in your life can be worshipped upon. Nothing is accepted because the because the issue is an opportunity the issue is mindset it's not that we lack opportunity it's that we lack the right mindset and so when it comes to worship are you a synthetic worshiper or are you an authentic worshiper is something is worship something that you do once a week like a synthetic ski slope or is or is it something that you see the opportunity to do every day now, when we read scripture, it's important that we understand, you know, the context, the historical background, the reason behind writing what was written. And in 1 John, when we know a little bit of the context, a little bit of the backstory, suddenly the whole passage unlocks for us. You see, this church that John was writing to was tempted with synthetic worship. There were certain teachers who were teaching that only your soul was sacred. This is the part that God has access to. But, but the matter and your physical self, that was sinful. That was something that you should really, really try to avoid. And this false teaching had this name. It was called Gnosticism. 
Now, we might call it knowledgeism because, because gnosis means knowledge, but it was called Gnosticism. And Gnostic teachers taught that our souls are sparks from the spiritual world that are trapped in human bodies like a cage. And so redemption in the Gnostic sense is being saved from your physical body by secret knowledge. And if you can get hold of that secret knowledge, then you're okay. And so salvation was no longer about repentance of faith. Sal- uh, salvation is now about what you know. And so this, this misunderstanding that matter is sinful but the soul is holy led some Gnostics to go to one extreme saying while you're in your sinful physical human body you must do nothing enjoyable or fun ever. You must, re- you must resist fun and joy and pleasure until you die and then your spirit is set free to go join with God somewhere out there. And then there were other Gnostics who said, while you're in your sinful human body, you could do anything the heck you want to because what happens in your sinful body won't affect your spiritual self. Uh, They are two separate things. It's a bit like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, it's a similar thing. What happens in the body stays in the body, so just have fun. And so John was writing to this church, warning them of teachers who were, who were teaching either this massive legalism over here or who were going out and sleeping with prostitutes and then coming to worship on Sunday and saying, everything's okay. They had separated the sacred and the secular. They had separated worship from everyday life. Worship was nothing more than a synthetic ski slope. And in some ways, I would say that we live in a very Gnostic society, We are taught that the physical world is separate from your true spiritual self. We, you know, we see it in how society views sexuality, finances, health, leisure, and many other parts of life. This is kind of like Gnostic thinking of the 21st century. And so if you're a Jesus follower in this cultural landscape, you need to take on John's advice in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. John, John tells us that not everyone who claims to have the truth indeed has the truth. But here in Canada, we're told that every truth claim is as valid as every other truth claim. The only exception to that is if you have a truth claim that lifts your truth claim above other truth claims and then your truth claim becomes invalidated. And so John says, you need to take these truth claims that you hear in the world, that you read in the current New York Times bestsellers, and you need to lay them aside the message of the gospel. You have to compare them. And so John is saying that it's okay not to agree with whoever is the latest faddish author or thinker is, even if they claim to be Christian. John is saying, use your brain, people. He's saying, think about it. John, John says in verse 1, many false prophets have gone out into the world, which, which means that there is a slew of perspectives, but there's only one source of truth. And so in verse 2, John gives us this test that we can use, this measuring stick by which we can test every truth claim. 
And so as I read verse 2, listen out for this test, okay? This is the test. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Verse 3, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So what is the test? The way that we can know if something is true or not if something is in line with God's thinking or not, is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So if the truth being proclaimed acknowledges that Jesus came and took on flesh and became human in the person of Jesus, then it passes muster. But why is this, why is this truth, why is this the litmus test? Why is Jesus' incarnation so important? Here is why. Because the incarnation of Jesus Christ is God's stamp of approval on matter, on humanity, on what you can touch and what you can feel, what you can experience with your five senses. God says, my stamp of approval is now on it. What this means is that, is that God declares that your physical self is not a mistake is not separate from the real you inside. You aren't split into two, physical and spiritual, as the Gnostic said back then and as Western thinking says now. Instead, you are all one. You are whole. You are integrated. You are holy. And so, and so anything that questions the value of your physical self or says that spirituality is about going beyond the physical or transcending transcending the physical, anything that says anything like this has to be refuted. We read in the book of Genesis, right, how God created physical matter, and then what did God say? It is what? It is good. And then God created physical humans with souls in his image, and he declared them what? Very good. So you are if, 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 if you're a girl, then you are a material girl, and you live in a material world, and that's okay. That's not a bad thing. And then for hundreds of years after creation, God interacted with human beings in very real time and space. He even showed up from time to time in a physical body so that he could talk with humans just like he did with, with Abraham and Sarai. And then as if that was not enough, God then becomes human himself. His, his, his final proof that the way he chooses to interact with us is not in some transcendental spiritual experience, but is in the middle of the stuff of life. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says this, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Then verse three, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful hand. Friends, God sent Jesus as the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his being and Jesus was human. In fact, 1 John 4 verse 9, just three verses after our passage today, says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So why is all of this important? Well, and why does this matter 
for us. Here's, he, here's why. First of all, Jesus came as a human. And in sending Jesus as a human, made of sins and uh, cells and organs like every other human being, God sent a powerful message that matter was created good. So Jesus came as a human. Secondly, Jesus lived and he died as a human. And through this, what God says to us, if you're a believer in him, is that we are called to fulfill God's God-given mandate in these physical human bodies. This is our worship vehicle. We are not to reject them or to indulge them like the Gnostics taught. Instead, we're to worship God through our everyday life. Everything is sacred. Everything is worship. And so Jesus came as a human. Jesus lived and died as a human. Thirdly, Jesus rose again as a human. And this actually gives us an amazing glimpse into what our resurrection, what our bodies after the resurrection will look like. Because uh, 1 John 3 verse 2 says this, right? When Jesus appears, we shall be like him. And Randy Alcorn says this, by knowing what Christ's resurrection body was like, we know what ours will be like. Jesus had a physical body that people could touch and see. He ate with his disciples and he walked. We will do these things on the new earth. So we won't be some spirits floating in the ether. We will have a physical body. And so this is where it gets really exciting because as we acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh, we concur that our human physical bodies are good, which means that, that your body is not something to be escaped or indulged, but it's something to be used to glorify God, which means that matter, your cells, the stuff of you matters to God. It also means that the mundane, ordinary life that you live matters to God. So your job and your family and your home and your hockey practice and your swimming lesson and your social media account and, and your Christmas plans and your shoveling of snow and your splitting of wood and your relaxing at the end of the day with a glass of wine and your shower and your cleaning the entranceway before guests come over and your antidepressant medication, your investment choices, your weekend plans, all of this is sacred. All of this is worship. Everything is worship. Everything can be turned into an opportunity to give God glory. Nothing is wasted. Friends, listen to me. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So true spirituality has hands and feet. Sp true spirituality is earthy. It's tangible. True spirituality is not just thinking holy thoughts, but it's living as Jesus lived in real time and space. And sometimes we are downhill skiing. Worship is easy. But sometimes we find ourselves off-piste and things are getting complicated we have our doubts and our questions. Sometimes we're right at the bottom of the valley and things are getting tough. It's really not easy. But even in the lowest valley, what can you do? You can cross-country ski. So you can still ski. You can still worship. Regardless of where you find yourself on this map, you can worship. Because we can say, 
God is here and I didn't know it, but now I realize it. We can say that this ground is holy ground. And when we realize this, friends, what it's like, it's like a second incarnation event that takes place inside of us, right? Because what incarnation means is literally enfleshment. So God with skin on. And so the first incarnation event was Jesus coming to earth as a human and he lived and died as a human being and he rose again as a human being. But the second incarnation event takes place when someone like you repents and believes in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. When you acknowledge the first incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh, God with skin on, then God the Holy Spirit moves into your life. This is the second incarnation event. Jesus moving into your life, into your circumstances, and he renders them sacred. He makes them holy through the Holy Spirit. Jesus moves into our flesh, into our physical human matter. And this is the game changer, as verse 4 tells us. It says, you, you dear children, are from God and have overcome them. These are the speakers of lies which I was talking about, these Gnostics. Um, and then he says the reason. You've, you've overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The second incarnation event. And so we don't have to fear the latest fad thinking. We don't have to fear the latest expert who rubbishes faith in God. We don't have to fear our doubts or our questions because we have a God who is in us and who is greater than our hearts and we have a God who is in us who is greater than those who are in the world. And if God is in the stuff and circumstances of your life, then suddenly everything becomes worship. We have a world that says that matter doesn't matter. We have a world that says the true you is nothing more than a spiritual spark inside a fleshly prison. But God looks at you, at your soul, at your spirit, and your body, and he says, it is very good. He looks at you and he says, it is great. In fact, it's so good that I'm going to redeem your whole selves by becoming human myself, by showing you what it means to be fully and truly human. And so the question which each of us have to answer is, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe those in verse 5 who are from the world and who speak from the viewpoint of the world and to whom the world listens? That sounds to me like a bit of an echo chamber, right? They're from the world, they speak the viewpoint of the world and to whom the world listens. Are you going to be um, synthetic worshippers who have this sacred secular split in your life? Don't be like them. Friends, verse 6 says that we are from God and whoever, is, whoever knows God listens to us. When I was growing up, I had a misunderstanding of skiing. Skiing was this one slope outside of Cardiff. It was fake, and you could tell that it was fake, and I avoided it. But for others, like you guys, the, the presence of snow meant that every inch of the landscape could be skied upon. God wants you to worship him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not as a checklist or a threat, right? I sometimes view that as a threat. How can I do that? 
like I'm setting myself up for failure. How can I worship you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? But it's not presented as a threat, but it's presented as an invitation to an adventure. Friends, God is worthy of your whole life of worship. Every inch of your life can be leveraged as worship. God can be known and experienced and met and interacted with on every inch of your life's landscape. Everything is worship. Oh, how high would I climb mountains if the mountains were you high? Oh, how far I'd scale the valleys if you graced the other side. And oh, how long have I chased rivers from lowly seas to where they rise against the rush of grace descending from the source of its supply. Cause in the highlands and the heartache You're neither more or less inclined I would search and stop at nothing You're just not that hard to find